Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Don't worry, I'm not going to get any of this running. Um, I'm quite excited about today. Just to let you know, we have about, um, yeah, almost 45 to 50 people involved in our guests who's coming to lunch today. And some people even commented to me this week how they're kind of excited. They said it's a bit of an unknown thing to get in a car and go to an address and not knowing who you're going to. Um, if you get um, 19 Aberfoyle Park um, Crescent at Warradale, that's my parents in Adelaide. They wanted to be a part of it, so I do apologise. You're in for a long... Oh, no, just kidding. Um, I'd like to thank people. I've got a, um, a number of people have made comments to me about the series that we've been doing on the Book of Ruth. I know it seems we've been journeying through this book for a while. Well, we only have two to go. Today's and we will finish the book next week. The verses we looked at last week, if you remember, were from the beginning of chapter four. And I said it was the tale of two men, two men who were confronted with the law and one man said yes to God and the other man said no. Boaz approached Ruth's closest kinsman redeemer to see if he would take Naomi's property. And he said, absolutely, I will, because that was the law. And then when he brought in about Ruth, he declined. He said no, because he was afraid of ruining his, his inheritance. Well, in today's passage, we see the what happens now. And in what happens, we see three things. Those three things are the title of today's sermon. Signed, sealed, and blessed. Let's begin with the first one. Signed. In Australia, when a legal matter like a marriage, a sale of real estate, or the making of a wills and so on takes place and is confirmed, it's usually done by the signing of a contract. This is our legal way of confirming matters. In ancient Israel, witnesses were called at the gate of the city where the legal matters would take place and be resolved. A matter would be discussed, decision would be made, and in order to sign or seal the deal, a sandal would transfer from one person to another. Why? How come? What's this practice all about? Well, in the Old Testament, shoes and feet symbolise different things. They symbolise power, possession and domination. For instance, when Moses removed his shoes and his sandals at the burning bush, he was acknowledging God's lordship. When David walked barefoot before the Lord of the Ark of the Covenant had been lost to others, he was showing his powerlessness and humiliation. Sandals were seen as really representing the person and whether they had power, what possessions they had and what dominions they had. Throughout history in many cultures, the shoe still carries many of the same implications of power, possessions and dominations. I don't know if you can remember when the US captured Saddam Hussein, what the locals did to his statue. They went there and they threw their shoes at it. It was a transferring. They believed that it was saying, you no longer have my life. In Australia, we have sayings like, try walking in his or her shoes. This tends to be a way of us saying, only when we walk in that person's shoes can we really know what that person is like. I remember I did a funeral one day and they had a pair of shoes placed on the coffin and the comment was made, no one will be, ever be able to fill this person's shoes. Again, this is all about the person's life. It's not about their shoes. So you understand shoes can represent or point to the life of a person in many ways, who they are, where they've been, and what they own. 
This is why in the Old Testament, the giving of a sandal was like the writing down of a signature. It was a physical sign that a commitment had been made between two parties. In the law, the sandal went from the one who possessed the right or owned whatever it was to the one who was going to receive it. That way, if a dispute happened down the track or if one person tried to go back on the commitment or say that commitment never happened, all that the party had to do was simply produce the sandal. Once the sandal was produced, that was the sign the commitment definitely was made. Knowing this, we know when the unnamed relative of Boaz took off his sandal and gave it to him, this was a formal transfer of his right of redemption. He was symbolising the transfer of privilege to redeem the land from one relative to another. The handing over of the shoe demonstrates his inability or refusal to meet the requirements of the law. He was saying, yes, I know I should walk and go and redeem the land and roof, but I'm not going to do it. You take my shoes, you walk in my shoes. That person now belongs to you. I'm signing the rights of this contract over to you. So with the transfer of the sandal, the deal is signed. Now for the next one. Sealed. Once Boaz received the, the sandal, he asked the ten witnesses to give their stamp of approval that he had bought and acquired all that was on the table. That is the property and also the widow, Ruth. It was important that he stated both. It is so important that he said he was acquiring both land and roof. That way, he couldn't be accused of tricking this man and then just going and taking the land and not marrying Ruth. As could some people did this. Some people would say, I would do both of these things and then only did one. By asking them to witness that he had the right to both land and wife, again showed that he was a man of noble character. But again, asking the elders to formally witness the transaction and that he's taking both was also his sealing of the contract. Denir Kingsman signed the contract by giving him the sandal. In Boaz's words of acceptance, he sealed the contract. He said, it is finished. So both parties had done their part. I can't help but think when he's talking about this, it must have been hard for Boaz to even speak. I mean, his heart would probably be beating so hard that he find it difficult to speak. The first time his eyes glanced on Ruth was in that field. It was apparent that he was attracted to her. Now he has the joy and pleasure of announcing that she's going to be his wife. The formal announcement of marriage has been proclaimed. It has been witnessed not by two or three witnesses, but by ten. None of them challenged the proceedings, and all who were gathered there were agreeing, in agreement. The matter had been published. Boaz had met the requirements of the law. He carried through the accomplishments of his promise. With their approval, with the sandal in his hand, and with his words, the matter is now signed and sealed. The transaction has taken place. It has been signed and sealed. The unnamed near relative now, sadly, drops away out of the picture and is never heard of again. Boaz, on the other hand, remains, and because of his noble action, the elders pronounce a prayer of blessing on him. And that's my final point. Blessed. For the fourth time in this book, the blessing of Jehovah is once again pronounced over Ruth. 
In chapter 1, during her time of great distress and anguish, Naomi pronounced a blessing upon her when she said, May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. The second blessing is found in chapter 2. This time it was from Boaz. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, in chapter 3, Boaz gives another blessing. Because of the great kindness that was shown to him by not running off with a younger man, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. How great is it that these blessings have come true for Ruth? She has found her rest under the wings of Boaz, and together they found rest under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. They have been blessed. But there's more. Now, again, in chapter 4, after Boaz's declaration and sealing, his willingness to redeem Naomi's family's land and take the widow as his wife, all those present play another, pray another blessing in the name of the Lord on Boaz, a blessing that is really three blessings in one. The first part of the blessing isn't about finding rest. It's about having babies. The people prayed that Ruth would be fruitful in bearing children. It's important that Jewish people, wives, bear children. I'm sure you all know Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. You can see people in, for people in Israel, children were considered a blessing, not a burden. Not only to continue the growth of the nation, but also God promised that it would be through Israel that they would see the Messiah come to earth. This is why from an Old Testament biblical point of view, when it came to praying for a married couple, what should people pray for? The answer was children. And this is exactly what is happening here. The elders wanted Boaz's wife to be fruitful, so much so they asked God to make Ruth like Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. The reason for connecting or including Rachel and Leah, these two women are being introduced as hopeful comparisons as a wife for the house and also as a great example of a mother for the household. Leah and Rachel bore to Jacob eight sons. These sons built the nations by founding the leading tribes of Israel. Their blessing is this, just as Rachel and Leah, when they built the house of the Israel through their sons, I pray that Ruth will continue to build the great name of the house of Israel through yours. The next part of the blessing is all about a blessed life for the couple. They ask God to give them a standing in Eretha and fame in Bethlehem. The words here are actually not clear as what we have them in English. It simply says, and make them prosper. It isn't known for certain who the blessing is about, whether it's Ruth or if it's him or if it's both of them. Either way, it doesn't matter because the meaning behind the blessing or what they want to happen doesn't change. They want them to prosper. We have already seen and touched on this meaning of the word prosper. It was used to describe Boaz in verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, and it was used to describe Ruth in 3.11. The word indicates not just material wealth, virtue and wealth. It means fruitfulness. 
and it is that which she's been asking to be blessed in. Therefore, the second blessing is a blessing of fruitfulness and grace prosperity in all aspects of life. This verse finishes with the blessing that they will be famous in Bethlehem. In this, it means that when people speak about famous folk about Bethlehem in the future, that they should be included in the list. Some say how this blessing is good for the town because when they speak of this couple, they are speaking of Bethlehem. Fame to them means fame to Bethlehem. Surely this has happened many times in the mouths of God's people for thousands of years. The third and final part of the blessing is all about their family line. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, it's easy to understand why Rachel and Leah may be a part of this blessing from the elders, but why Perez? What's so special about Perez? And why do I say it's a blessing about the family line? Well, we find the story of his birth in Genesis 38. And let me tell you, it's not a good story. Perez was one of the twin sons of Judah. Their conception happened through him being tricked by his daughter-in-law Tamar. Even though he was tricked, he shouldn't have even been in the situation in the first place. It was a dishonest union between both of them. They both sinned greatly by conceiving these these twins. But God, there's my two favourite words again, worked through their sinfulness to bring about the birth of Perez. Perez fathered two sons. They became the family leader of the Pezzarites clan. When the Israelites returned from captivity in Babylon, the Pezzarites were chosen to live in Jerusalem. The Bible says this about them. They were all well-respected and were all outstanding men. It was though the family line of Perez's son, Hezron, that King David and eventually Jesus Christ comes from. The Messiah is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, having descended from Judah through Perez. By the elders of the town, including Perez, in this blessing, this is what they're saying. Judas and Tamar, union with each other, made them both guilty of an horrific sin. Their son was born in such a terrible situation, would surely have a terrible start and time in life. No good could come of that of this family name would be doomed because of what those two did. But God turned it around into a blessing. Tamar became the mother of a noble house. And even though the family line started badly, things changed for the better. The same can be true for what is happening here. The fact that the close relative backed out of redeeming the land and marrying Ruth, people may think this marriage between Boaz and Ruth is doomed because it's not starting properly. This blessing is a prayer that even though the start is bad, Ruth will be granted the same grace through her child that Tamar had through hers. The family line will continue. The elders obviously had deep respect for Boaz because even though he was already a prominent figure in their city and he'd already come from the very distinguished line of Perez who formed the forefathers of Israel, they still prayed this blessing upon him. They prayed for many children renowned fame for both them and Bethlehem and a prominent family line. The blessings show how he's proven himself faithful to both the letter and to the spirit of the law before the elders. He has been blessed by his elders in the name of Jehovah. And as in the case with the other three blessings we saw in chapters 1, 2 and 3, as this study unfolds, we see the elders' blessings come to fruition. 
Just like the blessings of finding rest were fulfilled, the blessings then are literally fulfilled in his great-grandson David and his greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. Signed, sealed and blessed. So what? What can it mean for us today? Well, today, the so what for me today is a little bit out of left field because it comes from this point of view. Do you know, some say the book of Ruth is all about the marriage. Well, I don't believe that to be true. Why do I say that? Because over the past 11 sermons, we have covered 75 verses. 75 verses on this book of Ruth. We've done 75 verses and still no wedding. Then next week, we get to the wedding. Do you know how many verses are about the wedding? A half. All it says is this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That's it. And if even after that, there are only five and a half verses left in the book, and most of them are a family lifeline. If this book was all about the wedding, then why the 75 verses beforehand and why only five and a half afterwards? That for me is the so what of today. Asking ourselves this question, what can we learn from those 75 verses? What can we learn from all those events leading up to this wedding? And for me, it's all about living a faithful life in every situation. People will say the book of Ruth comes down to two things. Trusting God, living a life of faith, regardless of the circumstances. That's one of the key things of the book of Ruth. And the other that I'm looking at next week is redemption. We have this wonderful story. Yes, this story is history, but the faith demonstrated by the main players in this story is not history. If I was to ask you, in this book, who is the main player? Please do not say Ruth. Please do not say Boaz. And please do not say Naomi. The main player is Yahweh, is God. These past 75 verses are given to show us the wonderful workings of God in the lives of his people. Workings that eventually cleared the path for the best possible outcome for all involved at that time of history. God worked, he's the main character, and they had faith to follow. That's why I'm saying at the end of this book, what I said in my very first sermon and at the start of this book, this book is all about the importance of living by faith, living a faithful life in every situation. At different times in the past 75 verses, we've seen Naomi, Ruth and Boaz depend on God to see them through hard times. They've believed that God would help. And because of them living faithfully, they saw blessings beyond any of them could expect it. Here's the challenge from this book. Are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to live faithfully in our lives, in our church, in our town? Or we are called to do it. We are called to live a life of faith. Do you know, faith is not merely a concept of words. It's an action. We can talk about faith all we want, but the level of faith we have in something or someone is directly related to how much we depend upon it. Faith always becomes actions. 
Faith's not an order form for God to fill in. Faith is not a magic coin we drop in God's blessing machine. God is God and we dare not treat him like a commodity. We may be disappointed when what we thought was best for us does not happen. But living faithfully and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus tells us we can trust God and he will not let us go. Do you know when trouble comes in our lives, we can do one of three things. You can just simply sit back and put up with them. If we only put up with our trials, then trials become our master. Why? Because we never beat them. They are always there. We know they're there, but we say, well, nothing ever changes, so I'll just sit back and I'll put up with them. No point. I'm not sure if you've ever been in this situation, but if you have, you'll know. Sadly, when we live and say things like this, we have a tendency to become hard and bitter. We end up like Naomi, saying, God is against me. The second thing we can do with our trials is run away from them. David understood what this was like when he says in Psalm 55, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from tempest and storm. Maybe as you sit here this morning, you can truly identify and agree with him. Maybe because of a trial you are facing right now, you think the best thing that you could do would be to grow wings and just fly out of here. Run away. Get as far away as possible. And then it will all be gone. But as many say, you can run, but you can't hide. Well, let me give you another one. You can run from your trials but you won't win. If you simply try to run away and not face your trials, then we will probably miss the purposes God wants to achieve in our lives through them. You can run, but you won't win. The wiser thing to do is the third approach to our trials and problems in our life. Join them. You're probably thinking, what the heck does that mean? How do you join them? When trials come... Rather than wishing you're a dove that could fly away, ask God to make you a different kind of a bird. Claim the promise of Isaiah 40, 31. Wait on the Lord for wings like eagles so your faith may soar above the storms of life. This is joining in our trials. When we learn to join in our trials, they will become our servants instead of our masters. When we join our trials and walk by faith and claiming God's promises, They work for us, not against us. God will work things together for the good of those who love him for his glory. May not be what you want, may not be what you expected, but let me tell you, he is there. He is working. Do you know there are verses we all know and we all quote, God will never leave us or forsake us. Is this true? True. Sorry, is this true? verse still true when your life is at the bottom of the pit? We can go through life knowing he's always there. Do you know, I found it interesting that you've seen probably hundreds of thousands of people interviewed by um, people mourning the Queen. And there's a comment that's come up. I've seen it about eight times. And people said this, we now live in a different world because regardless of what our world was facing, 
They said, we always knew she was on the throne. They said, regardless of what was happening in our country, it was just reassuring to know that she was just still there. Well, now she's not. Now she's gone, and that was their point. God's not like that. He is and always will be on his throne. Know this. You can run, but you won't win. You can join and stand with him and allow him to do in your life whatever he chooses, and you will win. No matter how difficult our circumstances may be, the safest and best place for us is in the will of God. When we, like Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, live and walk faithfully, that is committing our lives to the Lord and relying wholly on him to meet our needs, following the law, doing what he requires, claiming the promises of God and obeying his word, then and only then is our life a win-win scenario. Faith works, but it has to be worked to work. Like Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, we have to believe that God knows what he's doing. He will see us through the hard times and bless us richly and deeply as he sees fit. In times of difficulty, when we live by faith, in spite of what we see, how we feel or what's happening to us, we can be sure that he will either take us out of the trouble or bring us through it. Then our life glorifies God, witnesses to the lost world, and builds Christian character. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I just thank you for the incredible God that you are. Lord, I thank you that this is just one little book of, of four chapters, and yet we see how you work in people. Father, I thank you that you never stop loving and leaving your children. I thank you that you don't ever leave us or forsake us. And Lord, I pray that whatever we are going through, that, Lord, we will hold on to you and that we will continue to obey your word. And, Father, I thank you that you never change. You love us, you keep us, you guide us. And, Lord, I pray and I thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to run the race that you've got in front of us. In Jesus' mighty name, who makes it all possible through the Holy Spirit. Amen.